Okay, now we've been, we started off with Sutta number 26, dealing with focusing in on the enlightenment of the Buddha. And in Sutta number 26 of the Majjhima Nikaya, this is treated extremely briefly. So for this reason, we have gone to Sutta number 36, which takes this matter in somewhat greater detail, showing how the Bodhisattva first had undertaken these extreme austerities, then he gave up on the extreme austerities, and discovered what he thought to be a new way to enlightenment by recalling this childhood incident when he was sitting under the rose apple tree and almost spontaneously he entered into the first jhana. And so when he recalled that childhood experience, then the thought occurred to him that this is the path to enlightenment. And previously, as I mentioned last week, he had been under the conviction that the way to enlightenment must lie through self-affliction, through the practice of austerity and self-mortification. And he had subscribed to the common belief amongst the ascetics of this period that any type of pleasant feeling, any kind of experience of pleasure or happiness is to be avoided. But now, in consequence of that childhood memory, the intuition came to him that there could be types of pleasure which are not to be avoided, not to be feared. And the reason they are not to be feared is because they have, as he says in the text, they have nothing to do with sensuality, with karma, or with unwholesome states, with defiled states of mind. And so now he's become convinced that the way to enlightenment lies through pleasant experiences. That is why, as I said last week, the middle way usually is depicted just as avoiding the extremes of sensual pleasure and self-mortification. But we could also see it positively as combining the aspects of non-sensual pleasure and renunciation. What one eliminates or gives up is the sensual type of pleasure. Pleasures connected with the indulgence of sensual desire. And one gives up renunciation that leads into self-affliction and extreme ascetic practices. But by taking a healthy and wholesome kind of renunciation and combining that with a non-sensual, a spiritual pleasure, then by combining these two, one has an effective and enjoyable means to enlightenment. Okay, and so when the Bodhisattva had this realization, then he decided that he would pursue this practice of meditation that he had started or that he had experienced 
when he was a young boy. But now his body was extremely weak because he was practicing fasting and austerities and he was so weak that he couldn't really maintain a firm meditation posture. And so he decided to resume taking normal food and he started going on arms round and collecting food from the houses. And at the time there were five ascetics who were associating with him and attending on him because they were, had been very impressed by his bearing and his determination and they knew that he had gone forth from the princely family, from a royal family and so they were convinced that if anybody amongst all of the ascetics that they knew in this part of India, if anybody was going to achieve enlightenment, it would be this prince of the Sakyan clan. But when the Bodhisattva started to go on arms round and to collect food and to eat and to resume his normal body weight, then these five ascetics became disgusted with him. They were convinced that he was giving up the struggle for enlightenment and just living a life of ease and comfort in the guise of a, a monk's robe. And sometimes it's thought, I think, in some popular stories of the Buddha, of his quest for enlightenment, that the meal that he received from Sujata was the first meal after he decided to give up the fasting. But I don't think that's very convincing because when Sujata came to offer him that meal, she found him sitting under the tree, already very handsome, very impressive. So if he was still emaciated and just reduced to skin and bones, she wouldn't have been impressed with him. I think what happened is that he started to go on arms round and to resume taking normal food until he regained his strength, maybe over a period of several weeks. Then, on the day that he was to make this determination to struggle all night for enlightenment, it was on that day, the morning of that day, that Sujata came and offered him this meal. But the alms offering from Sujata is not mentioned in the Pali canonical texts themselves, but it's mentioned in the commentary in the story about the Buddha's quest for enlightenment in the commentary. Okay, so now the story continues with paragraph 34. The Buddha says that when he had eaten solid food and regained his strength, then quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered and dwelt in the first jhana. But now the traditional story of the Buddha gives us something else that happens before he enters into the jhanas. What is it that happens that we don't find quite in that way in the old sutras, but it comes in all the traditional accounts of the Buddha's enlightenment. But more generally the point that I'm getting at is that the whole battle with Mara <laughs> is we don't find this in the old sutras, but it comes in very early accounts of the Buddha's enlightenment, preserved in different Buddhist traditions. Bahutalisa. Yeah, Bahutalisa. 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 Bahutal
also the Mahavastu gives a very, very graphic account. It seems that there was one common source for this legend of the Buddha's battle with Mara. There are some sort of hints of it in the Sutta Nipata collection of texts where the Buddha speaks. There's a sutta called the Exertion, the Vedana Sutta, where the Buddha describes his struggle for enlightenment. And in that sutta, when the Buddha is practicing austerities, then Mara comes to him and tries to persuade him to give up his striving, to return to the household life, and to just do meritorious deeds in the hope of getting a happy rebirth. And then the Buddha rejects Mara's appeal, and then the Buddha speaks about the ten armies of Mara hunger, thirst, sensuality, impatience, and so on. And so it seems that early sutta on the ten armies of Mara, in which it's clearly the ten armies of Mara there, is clearly being used as a metaphorical notion. But in the developed Buddha legend, in order to make the story interesting and engaging for people to listen to, it becomes blown up into a full-scale account of a true, real battle taking place with Mara using, appearing as a terrible demon, using every possible device to force the Bodhisattva to give up his seat under the Bodhi tree. Sometimes Mara tries to tempt him with the beautiful dancing girls, his own daughters, Mara's daughters. Actually in the Pali Suttas, the case with the Mara's daughters, that comes after the Enlightenment. But I can assume Mara would have sent the daughters also before, before the Enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> then Mara tried to frighten the Buddha by calling up all of the demons and storms. Then Mara would have shown the Bodhisattva pictures of Devadatta back in Kapalabhattu <laughs> trying to win Yasodhara, the Buddha's, the Bodhisattva's wife, and to take control of the, to take over the throne and to rule the republic. <laughs> Using every tool in his arsenal. And also, I wouldn't also discount the possibility that there is such a thing as Mara Puta, or Mara Deva Puta. And I would assume that Mara Deva Puta would have really put on a full-scale battle against the Bodhisattva to prevent him from becoming enlightened. And so there could be a convergence of the inner struggle against the defilement and the outer conflict or battle with Mara the evil one. Anyway, eventually it reaches the point where after Mara has tried every strategy possible and nothing can make the Bodhisattva budge, then Mara challenges his right to be sitting on the ground. He says, you should get up from that seat. That spot doesn't belong to you. You have no right at all to sit there. Then the Bodhisattva says, I have every right to be sitting here. Then Mara says, what is your right? Who is there to witness, to bear witness for you? 
Mara turns, first Mara turns to all of his demons and he says, isn't it true that the Bodhisattva has no right to be sitting in that spot? And they all agree and they say, we agree with you, Master. <laughs> he has to go. <laughs> and then Mara says to the Bodhisattva, who was there to support your case for your right to be, be sitting here? And there's nobody on the Bodhisattva side. <laughs> but then the Bodhisattva says, the earth is my witness. Then he takes his right hand and he puts his hand down and touches the earth. That's the famous <coughs> gesture that one finds in the Bhumi Sparsha Mudra. One sees in many, in fact, even in that Buddha picture yeah. right above the shrine, the Buddha touching the ground. Is that in the I believe, I definitely so, yeah, yeah. It's in the, this whole story comes from the Jataka Nidana, the introduction to the Jataka. But apparently that there was a basic story of the Buddha's quest for enlightenment, which I think at least the original nucleus predated the division of early Buddhism into separate schools. And so that basic story got transmitted in with all the different traditions, but then it became elaborated quite differently. It, and it got assigned to different places. In the Theravada, it got assigned as the introduction to the Jataka, the Jataka Nidana. In the Mahasangika, another early school, it got somehow put into the, their the work called the Maha, Mahavastu. It's a much bigger work, it includes many Jataka stories. Then within the Sarvastivada school, the Lali Padistara, I think it was Sarvastivada, it became a separate work, a very long and elaborate. But the basic out structure of the story is the same in the different traditions. There was a lot of differences in detail. Okay, so once the Bodhisattva now called the earth to witness, and then the earth, according to some accounts, the earth deity appeared, and the ground shook. In the older accounts, the ground just shook, and a sort of voice came out from the earth saying, I am his witness. And then Mara, at this point, Mara was defeated, and all the armies of Mara had to flee. This would take place, I think, just as this, right after the sun had set. So now, with Mara defeated, now we come back <laughs> into the Sutta, and the Bodhisattva enters into the four jhanas, the four states of meditative absorption. And he would have stabilized his mind within the absorptions through the early part of that of the night. Okay, now having emerged from the jhanas that we come into the story, back to the sutta, he says, paragraph 38, he says, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfections, the defilements, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attain to imperturbability 
I directed it to knowledge of the recollection of past lives. I recollected my manifold past lives, that is, one birth, two births, and it goes on to many hundreds and thousands of aeons, kalpas. And so with their aspects and particulars, I recollected my many past lives. And according to the this was the, oh, yeah, according to the Sutta Self, the Buddha says, this was the first true knowledge, first vidya, attained by me in the first watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished, banished and light arose. As happens in one who abides diligent, ardent and resolute, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. While the Bodhisattva was recollecting his previous lives, he would have felt pleasure that this knowledge was unfolding before him. But this, this pleasure did not grip his mind and obsess his mind, so he didn't become attached to it. Here the reference to pleasure is intended to balance out the earlier part of this, the preceding part of the sutta, when the Buddha described his ascetic practices. He said that even though the terrible pains arose in him, but that painful feeling did not invade his mind and remain, didn't obsess his mind. So taking both together, it shows that the Bodhisattva had developed a perfect upeka or equanimity so that his mind could not be shaken either downwards by pain or uplifted by pleasant feeling. Okay, then in the middle watch or second watch of the night he directed his mind to the knowledge of the divine eye or the, what's called the knowledge of the passing away and rebirth of being chutupapati yeah. and so with the divine eye he says I saw beings passing away and reappearing inferior and superior fair and ugly fortunate and unfortunate and I understood how beings pass on according to their actions, to their karma. Okay, so in the case of the first knowledge, his supernormal knowledge was directed to his own past existences. And he saw the working, let's say the working of the process of karma and rebirth in relation to his own life, his own migration, transmigration through samsara, even over hundreds and thousands of great aeons. But now the divine eye is directed outwardly to the rebirth, passing away and rebirth of others. And so now within the present, he was watching this whole cosmic process of transmigration in place, seeing how beings are passing away and undergoing rebirth as determined by their own willed actions, their karma. 
in the full text it says he sees how beings who hold wrong views and who behave in unskillful ways accumulate unwholesome karma which will lead them to rebirth in the lower world. And he sees how beings who hold right views, who have reverence for the Aryans or noble ones, and who accumulate wholesome karma, will be reborn in heavenly states of Okay, now we come to the third knowledge takes place in the last watch of the night. He says, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, right, unblemished, and so on, I directed it to knowledge of the destruction of the taints, the taints of the asadas, the most basic, most primordial defilements. Then there comes the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. I directly knew as it actually is, this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, and so on. Then he says, when I knew and saw thus, my mind was liberated from the taint of sensual desire, from the taint of existence or desire for existence, and from the taint of ignorance. Then when it was liberated, there came the knowledge it was liberated, and I directly knew birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming to any state of being. And this was the third true knowledge that arose in the third watch of the night. So here we have this knowledge that culminates in liberation treated very, very elliptically, very, very compressed way. But another sutta will show this process by which the Bodhisattva arrived at that knowledge of liberation in greater detail. So now <laughs> we're using three suttas to sort of blow up in finer and finer detail the account of the Buddha's enlightenment. <laughs> Verse number 26, very concisely, just in one paragraph. Number 36 takes it over several pages but gives a very stereotyped presentation of his actual enlightenment experience. But this sutta in the, from the Sanyutta Nikaya, the sutta called the city, the ancient city, this gives a somewhat fuller account from a, another perspective of what was going through the Bodhisattva's mind when he was preparing the way for that third true knowledge that arose. Okay, here he's speaking, he says, Before my enlightenment, while I was still a bodhisattva, not yet enlightened, it occurred to me, alas, this world has fallen into trouble in that it is born, ages and dies, passes away and is reborn, yet it does not understand the escape from this suffering headed by aging and death. When now will an escape be discerned from this suffering headed by aging and death? I think perhaps that after the Bodhisattva had recollected his previous lives and had investigated the 
re- passing away and rebirth of beings, then he would have been seeing with very stark clarity the way the entire world is afflicted with old age and death. And so he would have been now inquiring and investigating how does one put an end to the suffering of old age and death. And so he would have he pr- proceeded by asking himself what is the most fundamental condition on which old age and death depends. What is that necessary condition which must be removed for old age and death to stop. And when he made this inquiry, then he came to the conclusion that the condition, the necessary condition for aging and death is birth. Okay, here the text is given very elliptically. I'll just spell it out a little. He next inquired, what is the condition for birth? And here by birth, jati is meant not coming out from the womb, but the initial moment of conception that takes place for human beings, that takes place in the womb. So why does conception take place? And the answer he came to was what is called bhava, <laughs> which means existence. And this is usually interpreted as an active process of existence in a previous life which has prepared the way for conception to take place in the next life. In other words, all of the activity, the accumulation of karma, coupled with the drive, the desire for more existence, that propels and steers consciousness into a new realm of existence to initiate the process with birth. Okay, why does this activity, this frenetic activity driven by, why does this frenetic activity that culminates in birth take place? What is the underlying root or cause of this karmically active existence? The reason the Bodhisattva found is clinging, upadana, grasping, holding to the five aggregates, or just holding to existence. Why does existence take place? Because of craving, thirst for more enjoyment, more experience, more pleasure, the thirst for continued existence. And what is the condition for craving, feeling through the six senses? Pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling. Why is there feeling? Contact. Why contact? The six sense bases. And why do the six sense bases appear? Because there is something called Nama Rupa, which we translate name and form. I've explained this many times, but <laughs> I'll just do it very briefly. The Nama Rupa we can understand as the sentient organism exclusive of consciousness. Often in explanations of Nama Rupa they have consciousness within Nama. But in the old suttas consciousness is not part of Nama, but consciousness is a separate condition. 
Okay, nama will be those factors that of cognition that arise along with consciousness that assist consciousness in knowing an object, experiencing an object. According to the suttas, the five constituents of nama are contact, feeling, perception, volition, and attention. And then rupa is form or the physical body. Then the condition for nama, <laughs> I don't really want to get too much into detailed discussion of the conditionality of nama, rupa, and vinyana, <laughs> because the main idea here is to, or our main purpose is to find to find the essence of the Buddha's experience of enlightenment and not to give a detailed explanation of Nama, Rupa, and Vinyana, which can take a couple of classes by itself. <laughs> so we can just for simplicity's sake, Nama, Rupa together is the sentient organism excluding consciousness, which is Vinyana. So then the Buddha inquired, what is the condition for the formation of this sentient organism? And that condition is vinyana, beginning with the first moment of consciousness in the womb, when consciousness arises based on the conditioning from a previous life. So at that very moment of conception, what is later called patisandhi, consciousness arises in the womb, in the case of the human birth, and along with consciousness, there comes nama-rupa, the sentient organism, the ovum, the fertilized ovum, which is the basis for the physical body, and even at the moment of conception, there will be some contact, feeling, perception, even some volition, some attention. These are say the embryonic mental faculties along with consciousness. Then throughout life, throughout the whole course of existence, our experience is an interdependent, an interdependent process consisting of consciousness and name and form. Always, whenever we are knowing any object, there is the basic awareness of the object, which is consciousness, there is the physical body, which is rupa, and there are the mental functions, some feeling, some perception, some volition, some attention, some contact. Okay, so now investigating this relationship, the bodhisattva came to nama rupa, name and form. Then he inquired, what by what is name and form conditioned? And then through careful attempts, I made the breakthrough by wisdom. When there is consciousness, name and form comes to be. Name form is conditioned by consciousness. Without consciousness, there can be no real physical, physical organism, no body functioning as a basis for experience, and there can be no mental factors, factors included in Nama. Okay, now he inquires, what is the condition for consciousness? How does consciousness come into being? 
in some presentations of dependent origination, the Buddha will go into the sankharas or volitional activities as the condition for consciousness and then trace the volitional activities to abhijja or ignorance. But here he is showing the mutual conditionality. Here I think he's describing the way his own enlightenment took place. So in that case his investigation worked with this mutual conditionality of consciousness and nama-rupa. So he was looking for some kind of more basic condition that consciousness could depend on. Most probably, though the text doesn't express it in this way, what he was engaged in was a quest for the Upanishadic idea of the Atman or the Self, seeking some kind of permanent subject behind consciousness. But when he tried to find a deeper subject behind consciousness, he couldn't. All he could find was nama-rupa, name and form present as a condition for consciousness. Then he would investigate, well, what is the condition for nama-rupa? And he came back to consciousness. And so as he was investigating, here I'm sort of reconstructing this theoretically, his mind must have been sort of circling around and around from nama-rupa to consciousness and from consciousness to nama-rupa. Perhaps going back from one life to an earlier life to an earlier life and finding in every life, even going back aeons and aeons, always this mutual play, interplay of nama-rupa and consciousness. That's why he says, then it occurred to me, this consciousness turns back, it does not go further than name and form. In other words, you can't go from consciousness to some kind of Atman or self, which is the, say, the witness or master, the permanent subject behind consciousness. But one just goes from consciousness as one condition to name and form as its partner in this process of conditioning. Okay, and then when he saw that one cannot go beyond name and form, then he understood that it is to this extent that one is born, grows old and dies, passes away and takes a rebirth. That is, when there is consciousness with name and form as its condition and name and form with consciousness as its condition. And then he would see how from name and form all the other conditions emerge, culminating in old age and death. And so at this point he understood this whole process of origination. So here in the Sutta number 36, the Buddha explains his enlightenment as the understanding or realization of the Four Noble Truths. I directly knew as it actually is, this is suffering. I think he would have had that realization of suffering, the truth of suffering, 
even when he was doing the investigation of his own past lives and observing the passing away and rebirth of others, he would have seen himself and all other beings subject to this continuous process of arising and passing away within one life continually, continually arising and passing away and from life to life arising and passing away being reborn growing old and dying and so this would have really sort of struck him deeply as the essence of the truth of suffering then as he was investigating the cause of the suffering the origin he proceeded in this way through these links of dependent origination seeking the first the condition for old age and death till he came to this vicious circle of consciousness together with Nama Rupa seeing them how they one conditions the other and thus they just turn on and on as a kind of whirlpool a whirlpool then somehow through his arising incipient wisdom there would have come this would be at that point I would say there's not yet the enlightenment but just a deepening understanding but at a certain point I think as he was sort of focusing in more and more closely on this mutual relationship of Vijnana and Namarupa both Vijnana and Namarupa would have disappeared and just broken apart <laughs> and I think that would be the real experience of enlightenment the awakening to Nibbana <laughs> even though the Sutta gives it somewhat in a different in a different method as though we were sort of proceeding logically okay what is the condition for old age and death disease then there has to be the cessation of birth then tracing the series backward what is the condition for the cessation of name and form the cessation of consciousness what is the condition for the cessation of consciousness the cessation of name and form okay even if we say okay maybe the Bodhisattva proceeded in that way but he still would have been stuck in a conundrum name and form ceases when consciousness ceases consciousness ceases when name and form ceases so it would be like a blind alley like how do you get out of it if one is to seize the other has to seize but I think maybe just the fact of seeing their mutual conditionality that neither of them was any kind of ultimate substratum for the other but the whole process of existence just held together as this interlocking network of conditioning factors which all being impermanent dependent on conditions then just at that moment perhaps everything would have just fallen apart and it would have been like the Buddha says in the verse of the Dhammapada when the householder now you are seen all of your rafters are shattered the ridge pole has been pulled down and the mind has attained sankara tanhanam kayamachapat 
Okay, so and it's at that point that the Buddha says, now I think he's properly at this point, the Buddha, he says, it occurred to me, I have discovered this path to enlightenment. Form comes the station of consciousness. With the cessation of consciousness comes the station of name and form. Then with the cessation of name and form and so on, all the way to the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. Cessation, cessation, thus in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. And so the way I see what, the way I would interpret what happened as the Bodhisattva was investigating this mutual conditionality of consciousness and name and form, then he would have just pierced through, the mind would have pierced through all conditioned phenomena and they would have all the conditioned phenomena would have just broken apart and the mind would have been, say, merged in the unconditioned, in Nibbana, the ultimate element. And then emerging from that, then in retrospect, he could trace that cessation, that experience of cessation in terms of this series of, with the cessation of name and form, cessation of consciousness, cessation of consciousness, cessation of name and form, all the way to the end. And so now, okay, continuing with the Sutta, back to the Sutta, number 36, okay, he says, this was the, he says in number 43, when I knew and saw thus, as he reached that realization of the fourth, when he made that breakthrough to the unconditioned, that would be the realization of the third noble truth. This is the cessation of suffering. And since he had followed the Noble Eightfold Path to get there, or at least I would actually think that before his actual enlightenment, he didn't have a clear notion of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. But he just would have been able, after reaching the enlightenment, to review that experience and see what were the particular factors that I was following in order to arrive at this experience. And in this post-enlightenment period, we can say, he would have constructed the Noble Eightfold Path just by singling out all the important factors that constituted the way he had, the method that he had used to arrive at this enlightenment. Okay, and while this, when this knowledge occurred to him, then his mind, he says, my mind was liberated from the taints, from the asapas, sensual desire, the craving for existence and ignorance. And I knew that birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no coming back to any state of existence. And that was the third knowledge that arose in him to make up his enlightenment. Okay, maybe we should stop the exposition at this point, then the next time, then we can return to our original sutta, the sutta number 26.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.